Welcome to Ontario Lab, the podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff, recorded right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Alvin Tejo. I'm Garima Tolwar-Kapoor. And I'm Sam Andrew. Today, we are back in kinda, sorta, lockdown. I'm going to use that as the episode. Shut part. down. Shut, shut down. down, not a lockdown. Kinda, sorta, shut down. <laughs> and a rainbow of colors across the province has all turned to gray. Uh, yes, Ford has pulled us into the emergency break and sent the whole province back into a shutdown. So we'll definitely need to spend some time uh, talking about that. Though I think just beyond knowing that, yes, we are upset about it too, I think we can spend some time looking at how it fits and like considering the province's decision-making as a whole throughout this uh, really trying time. I also want to spend some time on the extremely interesting investigation done by the Toronto Star this weekend on connections between some of Ontario's biggest developers and the Progressive Conservative Party and the 413 Highway. Uh, A lot to dive into there. Uh, And speaking of the Toronto Star, if you have not read Grima's column on how Conservative and Liberal governments in Ontario have dropped the ball on affordable housing, read it. Read it now. We posted it on Twitter. I was, I opened the paper on Saturday morning, I had my coffee, I was flipping through and I was like, great, affordable housing. And I was actually reading the article agreement. I was like, this is really good. And then I like, I was like, who wrote this? And I was like, of course it was good. Thanks. That, that was very kind. Yeah. And I'm excited that it got posted by the star and hope the seeds for that piece actually came from the pod. So we discussed the FAO's report on the pod and the more and more I thought about it, The more and more I was like, this just, given how big Ontario's budget is, really wanted to focus on how little we're spending on affordable housing relative to the resources that we have. And then we asked why we've got the housing crisis that we do. I feel like we should have a section on the website that just publishes all the various publications that we've had over the years. Uh, So people can see that all of Ontario Loud's hosts here have done an incredible job in Grima. It's a great article. Everybody should read it. But we should make it easier for people to find our uh, contributions. Yeah, absolutely. My other favorite thing is they put it directly below this like really weird editorial cartoon with Ford doing some kind of Easter egg hunt. Like it was a really strange picture article thing. So strange. Hopefully they are not connected. Just to make that very clear, the cartoon is no way connected the article. Yeah, a horrifying imagery. Wonderful article. I want to talk a little bit about the new vaccine plant coming to Toronto, which is a little bit late for this pandemic, but it could be a real help in the next pandemic. And also in good news, my mom got vaccinated yesterday. It's been, uh, That's you awesome. know, yeah, yeah, really. She had to call, spend like an hour on the phone to like figure it out, which is like, this should not be like changing your phone plan in Rogers, but she got vaccinated. It's all that matters. I'm really happy about it. That's so good. My dad got vaccinated on Friday. He said it was a very seamless process. It's interesting to hear how, yeah, the different processes work in different regions. All right. Let's start maybe with the lockdown Thursday or the shutdown. Oh, God. (laughs) 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 This is exhausting, guys. Thursday, Doug Ford announced that a province-wide shutdown would begin, which would ban indoor events, introduce new restrictions on in-person shopping, end indoor and outdoor dining and sports, and limit religious gatherings and weddings to a 15% capacity of whatever sort of venue size they're in. Noticeably absent was schools and childcare, which will remain open for the shutdown, and uh, any additional measures that were uh, in place prior to the pandemic. So trying to think through how to have a discussion about this one without just sliding into rage and frustration. Um, 
wondering if we can reflect for a moment on some sort of questions. We have this is the latest in what has seemed to be a pattern of slow and I would argue inadequate decision making on the part of the Ford government here. We like it's a typical pattern, weeks of people calling on the Ford government to take action on rising numbers and then some kind of hands in the pocket, sorry, we got to do this guy's kind of announcement. What do we think is driving the Ford government's decision-making here? It seems like we've been through this now for the third time. Sam, maybe starting with you. I think it's a really good question. I think the part of the problem is that a minority of people in this province, but a sizable group, are against the lockdowns. And I'm just going to be charitable here or use round figures, but like maybe two in 10 Ontarians, I think, are in that camp. The problem is I think that 20% is mostly conservatives. If the conservatives count their base as about 30%, like I, it's a, I think it's possible that a majority of the people who vote and support this party are not in favor of lockdowns, right? And so I think what they're hearing from their caucus, what they're hearing from a lot of their voters is not reflective of the overall population and certainly obviously not reflective of what the experts are telling them to do. So there's just this hesitancy constantly, I think, to do what they think is necessary until they feel like the data or the public sentiment has shifted such that they have cover to do it. I think that's at the heart of it. I like I think that the accusations that they're in the hand or in the pocket of big business and all those things I think are frankly more less much less likely than just the pure politics of it. Having said all that, I, I'm I really want a new public opinion poll. Like I just want them to stick it in my veins because I feel like uh, something happened this weekend. Like I've seen much more anger and directed at Ford specifically than I've seen probably the whole pandemic to date at the incoherence of this last announcement in particular. So whether that shows up in people's voting intentions, I want to see. Just building off of that, Sam, I think what's really interesting is that so much of these changes are affecting conservative writings more so than liberal or new democratic writings. Everyone is now at the same level that Toronto and Peel were at just less than a week ago, which means that all these rural writings and 905 writings where people were used to going out, sitting in restaurants and started having that sense of normalcy again, they're the ones being the most affected by a forged changes. And it feels like they're doing this half-assed. Like they weren't willing to go all the way when they should have gone all the way earlier. And now they're pissing off the people that uh, they most care about, whereas maybe they didn't need to do that before. But also... I feel like they're, I still feel like they're not doing enough. And the confusion between what a lockdown is versus what a shutdown is versus what a stay at home order is just mind boggling. They had to release new definitions last Thursday to describe to the media what the difference was between these three things. And they had just changed less than a week before then that uh, patios in Toronto could open. And then they undid that less than a week later. And you had a bunch of businesses stock up expecting to be able to continue to have outdoor activities, which they changed their mind of. Haircuts too. And 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 then walked it back within a week. I think just on both Sam and Alvin, you've spoken to the politics of it a bit. But if we go back to what the science and the modeling has said for weeks and all along, we are exactly where experts expected us to be 
if we opened things up too prematurely. And that's really important to keep in mind. The fact that we are at 3,000 new cases per day over the past couple of days with variants of concern taking up a greater proportion of new cases with incidence rates being higher in schools than they are in other community settings is for anybody that's been paying attention to the modeling and to the science should this is not surprising right and this is why so many experts were saying don't open up prematurely because you don't want to end up in this position it is exactly this type of flip-flopping that gets public sentiment really angry and I think risks the public or creates the risk that the public is no longer going to take uh, these orders seriously. And so as much as we've seen over the past weekend, I agree, like this real anger around the shutdown and the incoherent communications and messaging. I also saw, for me, lots of people going out in, and gathering over the long weekend in complete in complete opposition to what best public health advice is. And the type of public and the public narrative around this is just so different than it was last fall, let's say when again, it was Diwali, and we're talking about a completely different group of people having a significant time of celebration to where we were this weekend. And we'll see that unfortunately, again, in the cases two weeks from now. And so none of this should be surprising. And it just kills me when people look into cameras and look surprised about how we got here, because none of this should have been a surprise. No, and I want to focus on two particular areas that we know right now are driving cases, which are, are, are one, our workplaces, which we know essential workers are predominantly a lot of the places that people that are getting sick, who still do not have paid sick leave, who, you know, in, and if you're in a temporary job, who really can't take time off of work if uh, you think you have COVID or you just have a suspicion or something like that, or maybe you're asymptomatic. And the other is school and childcare. And I think a really interesting part of the province's strategy and certainly a thing that I've heard from a lot of people is, okay, if this is so serious, if the province is, if this is if we're hitting, if we're in a danger zone for like three, four thousand cases potentially in the next few weeks a day, how are we keeping schools still open with class sizes being what they are, with in-person learning? How is the province's education? Why is the province keeping schools open at this point, given that they've shut down schools on the other, t- the peaks of the other two waves? And I also think the the constituency of parents is still probably quite. Like powerful, like I think that the it's one thing to tell Ontario that we're shutting down. I think it's another to layer in schools onto that. I know probably every Alvin, I'm sure you were watching the announcement on Thursday with are my kids going to be home for the next week in mind. And if you're all, I can't help but think that if you're already predisposed to thinking that lockdowns, shutdowns aren't necessary, that we're already going too far, and then you're told that schools are shutting down, that probably is just going to calcify. Uh, rage in that group that they may be listening uh, a little too much to and not sorry sam no it's okay uh i also think just maybe building on karima's point like there's a real risk i think in this third wave that people start rejecting the advice i think especially in toronto where it's been locked down since i guess november and people keep being told that this is necessary to the points made earlier. Toronto has been in lockdown the entire time. And so there's a disconnect. Like I think the, the four of us can understand the, how 
this all connects, but for people who are not following the modeling closely, I think it's the sense that these lockdowns are not effective is understandable at this point to accept, right? But like, it also needs to tie into the vaccination strategy as well. And it, the rhetoric needs to match their actions. They just reported, the media just reported that there are only six active cases out of 70,000 people in long-term care homes in Ontario. That's phenomenal. That means the vaccinations are working. So if you're saying that these frontline workers are priorities and you're saying schools are priorities, you have more than enough vaccinations right now to vaccinate those people. Yeah. So you need to match what you're saying is important and what you want to keep open with what you're actually doing to protect those people. Yeah. And keeping schools open, almost all teachers remain unvaccinated is still something that baffles me. And when you build on their complete opposition to any discussion about reducing class size to deal with any features of the pandemic, you do get that incoherence piece. Part of me does. And I just think at the start of this, there were so many different things being talked about as the tools, right? So there's the lockdown, but there was the contact tracing, the mass testing, the, there were so many different components. And we just completely forgot about this. Like when is the last time people were being encouraged to go get tested or contact tracing? Nobody's talking about the app anymore. Like I just, it's, we've, we now just have this single lever that people are pulling on that. And that's the lever that people hate the most. Like, I just think they've totally lost the thread on the public communications. Also just one last thing. And just to pick up one, what Alvin was saying and Chris, a little bit of what you were saying, I think on, on vaccinating essential workers, like we need to be crystal clear on who we're talking about. So we've created like a little bit of a, a hierarchy of essential workers psychologically, right? So like doctors and nurses, for sure, frontline workers got vaccinated first. But now there's a lot of discussion around teachers getting vaccinated because they are essential to helping to make sure that kids stay in school and that we reduce transmission in schools. But there are like tons of essential workers that go into work every single day in factories and in restaurants so that we can stay at home. And so that is an they are critical to this to the success of a lockdown to a, a more broader shutdown or lockdown and so unless you can identify those people and actively go go vaccinate them you're not going to it's you're it's like addressing a, a gash that you might have on your arm by creating a band-aid on your leg it just it makes no sense and it these things are so obvious so i think the next question for me is then why is there such a disconnect from what is so obvious from what is actually happening is it it can't just be politics that limits that that jump one of the messages i saw over this weekend was that uh shutdown just means upper and middle class people staying at home working class people serve everything that they need and if they're not at the front of the line and if they're like they're the ones who are suffering the most. They're the ones who are getting infected the most now. And they also have a lot of hesitancy issues around getting vaccinated. That's who we need to be focusing on. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to make no friends by saying this, but I actually was thinking that to myself this weekend. There was, there's like a hint of classism to this recent push on vaccinating teachers, which is I absolutely think teachers should get vaccinated. There's more, to Alvin's point, there's more than enough to go around. But there have been people out there since March of last year working at Loblaws and Amazon factories and whatever that should also be front of the line. So if they can't put teachers ahead of those people, right? Like, yeah, I remain firmly of the belief that they should get a big truck for buying trucks. We know (laughs) that he is a fan of trucks. Let's fill just like 
get a vaccine truck, park it in front of Amazon and just be like, vaccinate people as they go into work because it is we know that there are hot spots we know that there are areas in the vaccination story i think a thread that did not get enough topics so maybe we should discuss it on a future pod is how clearly flawed the leadership was in the process like rick hillier leaving halfway through the process there is now a new sort of person in charge of the, the process so clearly i think there were some challenges and disconnects in, in the vaccine strategy with the rest of the health strategy and i it'll be really interesting to see postmortems of how like what happened there because clearly it's, it's still flawed though chris there's a million vaccines sitting in freezers in ontario right? Why do we need a million just to sit there and not do anything? They've got more than enough. There's another 2.2 million coming this week, in addition yeah, to the they, three point something that came last week. And again, they took a holiday break after all the shit they got over Christmas. Again, both Good Friday and Easter Sunday were below 60,000. Like, it's crazy. Yeah, we'll come back to this, I'm sure. But yeah, lots of frustration, I think, at this point. Anyone listening who is involved in the strategy, please put my vaccine truck in front of the Amazon plant idea somewhere in the queue. But want to turn a little bit to another thing that we know drives the four government's decision making, which is its relationship with developers. The Toronto Star published a really fascinating investigation this weekend on the ties between the Ford government and developers and the 413 highway project. For those that aren't familiar with the 413, it is a proposed highway that would go basically from Milton to north of Vaughan, which would allow drivers in the GTA to bypass the congested Toronto area. This would relieve some pressure in downtown Toronto, where the highways are some of the most congested in the entire world, and is really being sold, I think, as a potential solution to gridlock downtown, which we know has a lot of political saliency. It doesn't even matter what your party is. So a panel back in the Liberal government studied this 413 proposal and found that the projected impact of building this 413 highway was an average of 30 to 60 seconds of driving time aggregate in those most congested areas of downtown and that construction would require uh heavy the highway would require heavy construction over some of ontario's prime agricultural land the green belt and require uh, several folks living on the proposed route to relocate potentially uh, the liberal government i think weighing all of those things, decided to shelve the project. The Ford government has brought it back. And the star did a really interesting investigation as to why. And in trying to address the question of why, they found that eight Ontario land developers, all with significant ties to the progressive conservatives, either through lobbyists or through other me other donations or other means, own 39 properties and 3,300 acres of land along the proposed highway route. Today, the property value of those is about a half billion dollars. But if the highway was built, the implication is that those property values would increase significantly. Now, it is important to note that in infrastructure like roads and bridges can be justified when you have population growth, which the projected area is expected to have. So I want to be careful about painting this just as a total waste, cash in hand like a thing. But I think one of the things behind the liberal government shelving this project was a, a concern about urban sprawl. If we are going to be handling population growth is further GTA sprawl just out of Toronto in low density housing areas, the best way to go about it. And there was concern in the liberal government about that and encouraging a project that would encourage that. And it's also important to note the cast of characters lobbying on behalf of these developers are not exactly unknown. You have Peter Van Loan, who is a former conservative house leader. You have Frank Cleese, who's a former 
conservative member of provincial parliament, a former senior advisors to Hudak and Rob Ford, lobbying for these companies. The head of fundraising for the PC party is a former, like very senior employee of one of these developers. So it is a large collection of people who know each other really, who have close ties and who have a vested financial interest in this project. So reflecting on this, I actually don't think the conservatives are hiding their affiliation with developers at all. And in fact, are actually trying to use this as a political fight to paint themselves as champions of progress. The opposition is basically saying this is a conservative scheme to reward rich donors. What do we think the public should understand about the government's attitude toward this project and its relationships with business? Like, I just thought it was a fascinating dive into this. I I don't know why, Chris, they don't just own all of it and just say, yeah, we're close with developers. And what this is going to mean is that we're going to develop and make new housing for people. And in the middle of what I think is maybe the largest housing bubble that we've seen in Ontario's history, just going out with that message and saying, we're going to make more housing uh, available so that people can have more homes and, and more affordable homes. Just own it. Just own all of it and just say, yeah, the liberals thought that this was a good idea making this green belt 15 years ago. It doesn't make any sense. We'll re reconstitute the green belt further out so that anybody who does care about the environment shouldn't be concerned about any of that. But that this to me fits directly in Ford's line of messaging around we're going to do what is best for the people and that means giving them places that they can live and that means building more housing and yeah that means we need to develop those places in those places that you don't necessarily might want to develop right now to save a couple of trees far be it from me to give the Ford government advice I don't think they should do that I'm not suggesting they should but I don't understand why they don't just roll with that type of messaging I I think maybe to your earlier point, Chris, like I think some of it is a bit sensationalized. Like, of course, developers own land outside the main cities. That's where developers buy land in the hopes that they will be able to develop it in time. And of course, they're more likely to be conservatives because they're rich Italian men. Predominantly. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I like so I don't know that it's like hand in glove always, but should the Ford government be criticized for anti-environmentalism? things yes should they should their close relationship with some of these people in particular be scrutinized yes but i just some of it i thought was a bit overdone yeah and i i wanted to uh highlight this story for those two reasons because there was a there's a professor who i was quoting the story who actually would love to have on the pod sometimes who basically said lobbying in ontario is not often what you encounter it as a state it's not like an abramoff kind of situation where somebody shows up with a bucket of cash and they get a decision in returns. But clearly, there is a vested interest in the Conservative Party of a particular vision of development that is tied to financial interests. And that particular vision of development is sprawl. It is the GTA expanding ever outward in low density. It is more suburbs, less densification, less downtown Toronto-like areas, more Markhams and Mississaugas and Scarboroughs and Stovilles. And that's what is driving this vision. And I have no doubt that in the minds of conservative cabinet ministers, that is actually a good thing for Ontario. And I think like to your point of it i think they are starting to lean into it like ford part of the, the how they're getting around all of these environmental things is they're issuing mzos and ford had this ridiculous quote that he started to say multiple times being we will never stop issuing mzos for the people of ontario and i was just like 
That's such a weird, hey, that's just a weird thing to say. Who knows beyond maybe listeners of this pod what an MZO is. But I think if that was, I think they might be starting to take your advice and lean a little bit. They were, I think, afraid of touching the green belt before, but I think they're starting to lean a little bit more into it, which concerns me greatly because we need this, like the cost of that densification, the cost of paving Ontario's agricultural land, like we'll never get that back. Once you pave it, you never get it back. And that's a, and that's, that's just, it, it's just not, it's whether to have housing or not is not the debate we should be having about this. But I hope it does spark the, a, a better debate of how we solve the housing crisis, because it is actually insane right now in terms of what people have are having to pay for single family homes and obviously there's not enough supply of mix uh, mixed use buildings and things like that but we need to do all of it we needed to do it 15 years ago and we should be talking more and more about it otherwise people are going to look to solutions like this as the panacea that will solve the problem yeah and i wonder if like the liberals or the ndp have a vision of development and of population growth and of handling population growth that is coherent in any way. I think the Ford government, I think they're not saying it directly, but I think they do. And I wonder if the Liberals and the NDP have that same thing and have a strategy to position an alternative vision in in the right way. Like there's, I, I think there's an interesting question about how do you approach this? Because these developers also support the Liberal Party and actually to a very minor extent have supported NDP in the past too. The developers know that they're, they got to play with whoever is in government, which means that they are trying to influence this strategy that the PCs are totally whole hog on like to a, an equal degree. So I think it's interesting. So I want to finish on maybe a bit of a high note today. So we've been hearing a lot about the production of vaccines in Canada as it relates to our lack of supply right now. And we've started hearing, especially from the federal NDP, this talking point about domestic supply and a lack of domestic supply being one of our major challenges, with the implication being that the Trudeau government somehow dropped the ball on creating a domestic supply, which is why we're behind some other developed countries in terms of the vaccine distribution. This may be contributed to why the federal government announced $415 million last week, and the provincial government announced another $55 million, contributing to an almost billion-dollar plant being developed in Toronto to both research and then develop and produce future vaccines. The idea that this will help us being for the next pandemic. Sam, I'm wondering if we can uh, dive a little bit into what the province announced and maybe sort of significance and sort of how we got here. Way back in 1914, before our last pandemic, the precursor to Connaught Laboratories was founded at U of T and they played, you know, a really major role for almost 70 years in leading our pharmaceutical research, manufacturing, and and sale of vaccines um, and insulin at cost here in Canada. They played major roles in polio and smallpox, etc. In 1972, the U of T sold uh, Connaught to the Canada Development Corporation, and then the Mulroney government during its sort of program of privatization then sold it to Sanofi, which is a far- French pharmaceutical corporation in 1986. And so as a result, Canada no longer had um, a publicly owned pharmaceutical company. And over time, the role of Connaught in Canada also diminished prices for its drugs rose and it 
sort of lost its research advantage being attached to U of T as well. And so I guess that sort of brings us to today's, or sorry, last week's announcements with, with Sanofi and the feds in Ontario that they would be partnering to expand Connaught's flu vaccine manufacturing capacity, which will also in turn boost Canada's preparedness for future pandemics and, and basically solve for the fact that we're entirely reliant at the moment on, on foreign production. So yeah, really, it, I think it's a fascinating history. I'm curious because because I think as as we the drumbeat for the federal election picks up, we are going to hear more and more about a failure in domestic supply as part of the attack on the federal government. So I'm wondering if we can dive into that a little bit and help pick apart what is the current federal government's culpability in our not having domestic production. Clearly, they want to put this in the window as we're doing something about it. It's a huge capital investment. But yeah, yeah. What's the? how do we help our audience navigate that particular, what will be, I think, a very messy line of attack in the next election? Yeah, and I guess I've been a bit surprised that they haven't tried to pin this more on on Mulroney and like the conservative history. But, but the more current history is back Last May, just in the early days of the pandemic, they had uh, tried to partner with Cancino Biologics, which is a partner with Dalhousie University, and uh, to try to build capacity here in Canada. That fell through because it was reliant on China delivering seed materials, which never came through, which has also been a conservative line of attack. So then the federal liberals turned to upgrading the National Research Council facility in Montreal, said that they're going to build an entirely new plant for $170 million. And they had originally said that it would be complete by November 2020. That came and went, uh, and it's now not expected to be ready until the end of this year. Whatever happened, they haven't been totally clear about. I have no idea how long it takes to build vaccine factories. I'm not, you know, going to pretend to be an expert on that, but I, I could imagine that being sort of source of criticism, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think it's important to know that even if this had gone, it could not, I think, have fully prepared us for what, like, the federal government's efforts to partner with CanSino. And I think there was another firm in Montreal that they passed on potentially, which we may hear more about. You'll hear these things, but I think the really important thing is that decades of poor public health decisions of privatization set us up for a moment where we would have needed to scramble at the last second. There wasn't a well-built domestic infrastructure here that it was a systemic problem that built over years. We can't go back and do these mistakes. A really interesting wake-up call for federal and provincial governments that publicly owned research and health capacities and facilities is vital to our, not just our economic health, but our public health as well. And it's, I guess it, outside of a pandemic, it was something that was back of mind, but we are now paying a private company that we sold, like we sold them our sort of national asset. And now we are paying them to come back in a more major way into Canada. So I think it's an like privatization may save you some money up front, but you pay for it in the long run. And, you know, I love blaming the conservatives for things. And let's remind people that it wasn't just Mulroney, but Harper also got rid of some subsidies that kept some domestic production of pharmaceuticals here in Canada. But at the same time, you had subsequent liberal governments who could have brought some of this stuff back, and they didn't do that either. They took the benefit of the privatization piece and, and, and didn't do anything about it. But I think there's always a discussion to be had as to what is and is not a public good and what necessitates public ownership. And I think the government, the federal government has an opportunity right now to make the case for this in a very strong way and have a plan that lays out a national strategy for decades to come of domestic production, research, and commitment to 
to vaccines and public health here in Canada. And why not? Why not take that opportunity? And why not have that argument and discussion that we should be doing this and and that we should invest in this for our future. Totally. And you can totally see why the NDP is now featuring this as as an attack. Like it it fits into their wheelhouse, their narrative, their politics. I would take with a grain of salt, however, the sort of implication that the lack of domestic production is something that you can squarely put on Justin Trudeau, given the long history here. And I think if you go back in time to the Paul Martin years or something like that, if Paul Martin had, at the height of the sponsorship scandal, spent half a billion dollars building a domestic vaccine facility in Toronto, and that was like one of the la- the landmark investments, I think in the poli- people have a trouble going back and thinking about the politics of the time. And I think a lot of people would have been like, this is what you're focusing on, because we weren't in a pandemic then. It wasn't top of mind then. And we are now seeing what the the implications of those bad decisions, but governments operate with the political windows that they have. And so I think the Trudeau government is also to be commended for seeing this and taking it and moving us to step it back in the right direction. It's also not as if Canada is alone, right? There are very few countries with domestic supply around the world, as we're seeing with the vaccine rollout. Yeah, it's part of like global like it's like a global pharmaceutical, like dispersed supply chains. I, I don't, I'm not expert in it. I'm not going to try and explain it, but it's, this is your, like, yeah, it's a really important point. Okay, cool. Quickly, before we go today, want to do the rapid fire. Our listeners can't see this because this is a podcast, but Alvin is wearing a Jays shirt. I have some work stuff today, sadly, so I'm not wearing my Jays shirt, but the Jays are back. H- how are we looking? I, are we going to have an Ontario Lab recurring sports segment? I, I don't think there'll be a recurring segment, but I'm certainly excited about this, this squad and it's just really exciting the kids are all right and that they're taking down the yankees and that's always good back in the day we all used to go to jay's games together that was a real thing that we used to do i can't wait very <laughs> yeah, well looked really good on what day was it sunday saturday yeah. yeah i gotta say even just like having it back on tv has just made me feel like things it's give it's like that like nice little bit of normalcy okay moving us on brian Lilly with a new column in the sun this weekend about how ontario's science table has overblown the risks of the pandemic and we need to be commending the provincial government for it shut for its caution in heeding the advice of the science table not news not going to dive into the substance of the column but just what is it like living with no shame oh, it's okay. also just the proof is in the pudding right like the jurisdictions that have successfully tackled covid to zero are the ones with the healthiest economies and are not in lockdown like it's anyway whatever yeah it's nice to see that the sun is taking its conflicts of interest in its reporters extremely seriously i'm sure that both brian's girlfriend and the premier were really happy to read that Last thing in the rapid fire, federal liberals look like they're polling right now in majority government territory. What is the likelihood do we think that Justin Trudeau pulls the trigger and asks the chief justice of the Supreme Court to dissolve parliament after he passes the budget next month? I still think it's going to depend on this vaccine rule. If people really have shots in arms by Canada Day, I think yes, but but it's not looking good. Like if we have enough vaccines to vaccinate everyone by June 10th, as they say that they will get. I don't see why they don't pull the trigger. Like all they need to do is get the vaccines into the country and then they can blame all the provincial premiers for keeping them in freezers and not actually doing the rollout. And no, just say, we did people, our job, right? people need uh, shots in arms. They need their appointments, at least, I think, for it to feel real. Do you know what I mean? Even if there's three, four, five million vaccines just sitting in freezers in Ontario? I don't know. Maybe. Aaron O'Toole is like 
what it's not a good launch let's just say that yeah, yeah i'm i'm surprised you wouldn't know it by reading the globe and mail who are hailing him as the a new kind of conservative and a the, the globe he's really making i think john ebbotson happy but I, I agree outside of that it's not been yeah they're he like they're not their numbers are not heading in the right direction at all in um, writing this question it did remind me that we still don't have a governor general and nothing bad has happened <laughs> Yeah, it wasn't going to shake democracy's foundations to their core. Like that, yeah, yeah, especially yeah, in a minority I, government. So, my only take here is that little exchange that you and Sam just had, Alvin, are is probably the exact one that is happening on Parliament Hill somewhere in some room. Do we just need to get the vaccines in, or do they need to be in arms? I wouldn't feel safe until they were in arms, just as I won't feel safe until my vaccine is in my arm. And on that note, I think that will call it a wrap for this week. Thank you for joining Ontario Loud. Go get vaccinated, everybody. Get vaccinated when you're allowed to. That's all the time we have for today. Ontario Loud is hosted by Chris Martin, Grima Tawakapur, Sam Andry, and myself, Alvin Tejo. Thanks to our support crew, Harman Mundi and Fahim Khan. And of course, thank you to our supporters on Patreon. If you'd like to support our show, please visit patreon.com slash Ontario Loud. Follow us on Twitter at Ontario Loud, on Instagram at Ontario Loud Podcast, or email us at Ontario Loud Mail at gmail.com. You can find past episodes at our website at OntarioLoud.ca. See you next time. Stay safe. <laughs>